This episode is sponsored by Paris Mountain Country Club. Established in 1938, Paris Mountain is a fun and challenging golf course with great mountain views and is fun for all to play. It is located on 301 Old Rock House Road in Greenville, South Carolina. You can get in touch with Paris Mountain by calling 864-834-4781. Call and get a tee time today. Welcome back to That's a Good Word, a podcast designed to assist and equip Christians through advice from people in ministry. If you are blessed by our content, we'd appreciate if you liked and subscribed to our YouTube channel. Feel free also to follow us on any of our social media accounts as well. It is an honor today to have on Dr. Ronald Marks um, from North Greenville University. He is professor of chemistry at North Greenville. Um, he has spoken much on the topics of young earth creation. He is the author of a book called Why Six Days, um, another book called Why Does It Matter?, as well, uh, both books um, speaking specifically to the young earth creation discussion. Mm-hmm. So we are very honored to have him on today to talk about this topic. Um, Dr. Marks, thank you so much for coming on. Well, thank you for having me. I'm, I am honored to be here. Yes, sir. I did a little bit of research on you. I hope you don't mind. You're fine. You yes, sir. invited me, and I'm, I'm looking through your podcast and seeing these amazing people you're having on, thinking, why does he want me? <laughs> but so, yes, thank you. No, thank I'm you. Very, thank very you much so much for coming on. We're honored to have you. And um, I always like to start out, just give you an opportunity to tell your story, your background, your testimony, um, and then we'll get right into the, to the topics. Well, sure. Uh, and and I'll, I'll make this very short, very quick. I was raised by God's grace in a Christian home. Uh, I like to tell people that I was a sunbeam. So if, you, if you're a Baptist and you're a historic Baptist and I say, you know what a sunbeam was. You know how long ago mm-hmm. that was. I was in the church nursery before I had memories, and, and some of my first memories are always just going to church. So I was blessed by that, by a family that raised me under God's word. Um, but in that, uh, it was also what I would say is, was the classic uh, kind of Protestant Christian Baptist, where I was taught Bible stories, but not theology. Mm. And so for that reason, creation, of course, never really came up. I understood salvation. I understood things about the church. I understood things about God. Um, but it wasn't until very late in life that I had to deal with the issue of young earth versus old earth creation. But I was uh, exposed to the gospel at an early age, responded to it when I was seven years old, but really didn't understand what it meant to respond to the gospel until I was 13. So I I came to salvation with the Holy Spirit working on my life and calling me to repent of my sins Mm -hmm. at the age of 13. And not shortly after that, I really felt a desire to go into ministry of some sort. sort. I really didn't know what that would be. So I, I actually started my undergraduate career as a Christian studies ministry type major. Spent my first year taking Bible classes, church development classes, church history classes. And this was in Arizona at a a Grand Canyon, at that time, Grand Canyon College. And took my first chemistry class and realized that God had given me skill that not everybody had. Chemistry was just easy for me. And as I tell people today, young people, students, Often, if you're wondering what your career should be, look at what God's gifting in your life is. It needs to match with that. I don't tell them, go do what you love to do, because most of us love to be lazy. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I love watching movies, but I can't make money watching movies. I can't. Other people can. Um, but I found that I had this aptitude for chemistry. So I started to pursue that and just began taking every chemistry class I, I could and then declared that. And in my mind, thinking, this is still within what God wants me to do. I'm going to use chemistry somehow in a ministry, whether that will open doors for a mission field or something like that. And so I started into the chemistry program. And through a series of events, not directly, so I didn't go directly into my master's and PhD. I first joined, actually, the Air Force, so I entered the military. And it was the Air Force that reached out to me and said, we need people with advanced degrees in chemistry. Would you like us to pay for your master's degree? Yes, please. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And as I was getting my master's degree, now I'm, I'm going through all of this, and uh, I finished my college education as an undergraduate at the University of Tennessee, exposed to 
evolution. It's all part of what you're being taught there. Took courses in anthropology, learned about the Australopithecines, just assumed all of that was correct and just assumed that because the Bible said God had created the earth and science was telling me that evolution was how this happened, that they must somehow merge. And although I didn't know it, I had adopted what we now would call a theistic evolutionist view. Well, I finished my master's degree at the University of Tennessee and went to the Air Force Academy to teach chemistry. And while I was out there, almost within a few days of one another, I had a colleague who was a Christian and a young earth creationist. I did not know it. But he, in just a conversation, he said to me, well, let's forget everything else and just answer the question, why six days? Why did God say he created in six days if he didn't? Okay, so let me see if I can answer that. And almost about that same time, at least within a week, maybe in my discussions with my wife, she said the same thing to me. Why would God have not said 13.7 billion years for the universe and 4.5 billion years? He could have said that if that's what he did. Why didn't he? And as I struggled to answer that question, it became very clear to me that the answer to that question, which is clearly laid out, I believe, in Scripture, the answer to that question demands that those six days be literal 24-hour days, like you and I would understand mm -hmm. them, right. cycles of light and darkness, even though the, the hour and the 24-hour day was not actually established until much later on. Mm -hmm. But that cycle of light and darkness, which we would understand as being composed of 24 hours, had to be literal days, or the answer to the question became confused and mumbled. Hmm. And once I came to that conclusion, I then discovered that we're serving a God who's purposeful beyond our ability to even comprehend purposefulness. <laughs> He's intentional beyond our ability to understand intentionality. He is the greatest communicator. He's not he doesn't have the barriers to communication that you and I have. So as, as an example, I sometimes use, if you think about an ant and you see a, a whole bunch of ants running along and maybe here's a, some food you've dropped, maybe it's a hamburger or a scoop of ice cream, whatever it is, and you're looking at the ant saying, man, if I could just speak antish, I could tell them the food's over here and they could come get the food, but I don't. Well, that's that's how high God is above us. That's why we can't understand him. That's a really bad analogy because I'm not God. Mm -hmm. God does speak ant and God speaks ant perfectly. Mm -hmm. yeah. So God could very easily tell that ant in a way that that ant could understand where the food is. Right. God is perfectly able to tell us absolutely anything he wants to tell us. If he wanted to say 4.5 billion years, he could have said that to the very first humans in a way that they would have fully comprehended it. Mm -hmm. So then the answer is, why didn't he? Okay, so what else is in Scripture? And as I began to see that, and as the Holy Spirit began to work on my life and reveal that to me, it became very obvious that our intentional God, purposeful God, communicating God, self-revealing God, had placed throughout the, his word incredible evidence about what he had been up to. Hmm. And all of that points, I believe, in a compelling way to a young earth. Yes. One that was created about 6,000 years ago. And at that point, um, became what I prefer to call a biblical creationist and have uh, been in that position ever since. Now, at the same time, I, I also had to study evolution, which I really... I had been exposed to the teaching of evolution before. It had been part of my education up to that point, but I'd never really studied it. So then I had to, to tell myself, well, if, if I really need to make the decision of is it evolution or the Bible, I need to study evolution to, to have the integrity to say that I know what this says. And, and I discovered, Wilson, that it was filled with gaps and holes. And that underneath it, was this unacknowledged philosophical foundation. Hmm. So as I became more of a scientist, I had to understand that the science I was doing didn't exist by itself on its own. 
it actually sits on a philosophical framework. Hmm. And that philosophical framework either informs everything you're doing towards a old, old earth view, or it informs what you're doing, that philosophical framework, to a young earth view. Hmm. And I've just had a great time ever since. Right. And, and I've been grateful. Um, I think while I was working on my doctoral degree, I got an opportunity in the church we were serving in at that time to start teaching about young earth creation hmm. and spent several months just in a, like a Sunday evening class with almost the entire church in attendance, uh, going through the evidence of young earth, what it means, applying that to the Bible, pulling out, exegeting from Genesis and Exodus and, and the Gospels, everything that ties into a young earth and how that impacts Yes. Our theology. Yes. One thing that I love the, that, you, that you touched on was the biblical evidence itself. Sometimes, especially maybe in the old earth view, we have this, um, uh, there's this idea that we have to look to, to evidence outside the Bible, and somehow that evidence outside Scripture trumps the evidence inside Scripture. Right. But in fact, the Bible is evidence in and of itself, um, and, and we should treat it as such because it is, it is the most superior thing that we have. Yeah, thank you for saying that, because it is... It is important for us to acknowledge, uh, I am often asked, what's the golden bullet? What's the best evidence? What's the, the greatest evidence out there that points to a, a young earth? And, and the answer is God's word. Mm. That evidence trumps everything else. Because it clearly says, first of all, that God is the creator, and he's a self-revealing creator, mm. which is essential for us, I believe, even as Christians today. It is important for our growth to be able to, to acknowledge God for who he is and call him for who he is. So, yeah, that, that's, that is the best evidence and it's the most important. Right. And, and again, most of us today, we think we're, we're very young. I think it was C.S. Lewis uh, who coined the phrase chronological snobbery. And it basically means this. We think that because we are furthest out in time, that we are also the furthest out in knowledge and intellect, that just because we are older in time or further advanced in time, just because this is 2023, we're smarter than somebody was in 2022, much less 1900. So we have all this kind of, of knowledge that we should be the smartest. It unfortunately also makes us forget what has happened throughout history, where there was a time where God's revelation was seen as the source of truth and reason was always subservient to that mm. and it was really during the time of well i have to say the enlightenment i think is is probably the best time that this happened um, but during that that time it started to shift a little bit before that where the two were seen as equivalent but certainly by the time of rene descartes by the time his philosophical statements start to come in and his worldview starts to have an impact we have flipped this and reason is now seen as preeminent uh, form of truth and revelation was underneath that. So reason would allow us to say, ah, revelation is true because I can reason it out. And today we've actually gone further than that. And we've now said that revelation really isn't anything. Hmm. The only thing that matters is reason. And the only piece of reason that really matters is my personal reason, my individual reason, what I can think. That is what gives me the truth. We as individuals can confirm it for one another, but if I believe it tr it's true, that makes it true. It's incredibly dangerous hmm. and hopeless place to be. But yes, when it comes to young earth creation, God's word, yeah. absolutely the ultimate. Now there are physical science evidences, there are Evidences from the biological sciences, there are evidences from the geological sciences that all point to that same conclusion, but God's word is always preeminent. Yes. It's the best truth. It's yes, the... certainly. And we'll definitely dive into some of those examples, um, both in the Bible and also in science itself. Yeah. Um, just so we can kind of set that up, though, we need to talk, I think, about why this topic is so important and why it matters, because, you know, there are many people out there in the church that may say, why does it matter? It's not essential. It's not the gospel. Um, so they can think just because it's not essential, they think it's unimportant, and they, right. make, that, they make that mistake. Um, so 
when we talk about this discussion of old earth versus young earth, what is the what are the implications that it has, and why is it so important to us as Christians? You know, very very often when I would go to a church or even churches that I was a member of, and I would say to my pastor, "Does it matter what we believe about Genesis one through eleven? Does it does it matter if we're old earth or young earth?" Very often the answer came back. I don't know. I, I've never studied it. I don't think it's important. I'm focused on the health of the body of Christ. And I'm so busy, the pastor saying this, I'm so busy just trying to take care of the problems within the church. And none of that seems to be impacted by whether or not the earth is old or, or young. So most of the time, it was not something that, that they thought was important. But I, I believe that they missed they missed some very important consequences of it. And, and that was the source of both my presentation and the book that, that came along with that of Does It Matter? Does it matter what we believe? Because most people will say, no, this is not a gospel issue. Hmm. No, this does not impact what I believe about and know about God today. It really has no impact on that. And, and I can maybe just to put it this way, there are at least four areas that what you believe about both the creation and the age of the earth impacts. It impacts what you believe about God, it impacts what you believe about man, it impacts what you believe about truth, and it impacts actually the gospel. It does have gospel consequences. And I'm going to start with the gospel. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go ahead and start there. Mm -hmm. So in Genesis 1 through 11, we find a story. Now, the question is, is that story real historical events? Did these events take place in a real space and real time, or are they just an allegory? Are they a metaphor? Is it something that's portraying important information, but didn't really actually happen, didn't need to happen? If it is not a real event that occurred in real space and real time, and when, then why can't I use any story? If I wanted to make a statement about morals and ethics, why can't I write, why can't I use the writings of C.S. Lewis to do that? Or for that matter, J.K. Rowling? Does it matter? Would any story matter? Could I could I maybe use the writings of, of, I don't know, Isaac Asimov, if you want, or Ray Bradbury, or anybody who's writing stories that all, believe it or not, have a philosophical worldview and are usually portraying some type of moral, ethical story. Well, the Bible, certainly because it is God's word and it is inspired, but it contains an additional authority because it is a real event that occurred in real space, in real time. Adam was a real person. He was a real person who actually had a real name, who really lived at a specific time and actually did sin against God. I, I don't know about you, Wilson, but I, I sometimes wondered, what was that sin? I'm, <laughs> eating fruit? How can that be bad? I mean, and apples taste good. Now, of course, we know it wasn't necessarily an apple. That's right. just been the symbol we use. and we really don't even know that it was actually a piece of fruit. We don't know that. The scripture implies that that is what it is. It says that it was a fruit that they actually partake of. They actually eat it. But what was their sin? Was their sin the bite, the chewing, the digestion? What was the sin? And this is part of that. It comes back to who we are, our humanity. Mm -hmm. Does it matter? Yes, it impacts the gospel because it tells us where sin came and what really the root of all sin is. And what I have learned is the sin that Adam committed was that he said to God, uh, let me step back just a minute. So what was the rule? What did God tell them to do? God said, eat of anything you want, but not this tree. Why? What's wrong with that tree? Absolutely nothing. Right. What matters is that God is teaching them that he gets to define what right and wrong is. Hmm. 
God is God because he's God. He's the one that establishes morals and ethics. He's the one that says, this is right, this is wrong, not us. Adam said, I want that. I want to be like God, which is what Satan tempted him with. You get to be like God. You get to decide what is right and wrong. And when Adam took that fruit and ate it, he was claiming, no, God doesn't get to decide. I get to decide. I get to choose what sin is. And in that became the first sinner, and we became all sinners in him, everybody that followed him. If that's not a real event in real space, in real time, we now have a problem with the gospel and where sin came from. Hmm. Now move ahead to the revelation encompassed in the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. So the eternal son took on flesh, came to live with us. That eternal son lived a perfect life, paid the penalty for my sin by dying on the cross. He paid the blood penalty for my sin by dying on the cross, was buried and raised. Paul tells us that that second Adam, Jesus Christ, brought us life just like the first Adam brought us death. Hmm. Okay, now that's a problem. Right. How do you compare the real physical Jesus Christ who existed in real space and real time to a metaphor or an analogy? This person, because of this comparison, because Jesus Christ is a person who lived in real space and real time, being compared to a real person, yeah. it's necessary that he lived in real space and real time. So it impacts the gospel, what we believe about Genesis 1 through 11. All of it's important. Mm. It impacts who we are as humans because it tells us that we are humans. We're separate from the animals. We're not an evolved species. We didn't come out of something else. We were created specially, specifically, uniquely. In Genesis 2, the creation of man as it's kind of unfolded deeper than it was in Genesis 1, that deeper unfolding, the words that are used there about God taking the dirt and forming it into man, they imply a very intimate pushing, kind of like when a potter shapes clay. So God spoke everything else into existence, but man, he touched, he formed, and then he breathed into this formation and man became a living soul. That's a very unique creation event. But if Genesis 2 are not real historical events that happened in real space at a known time, that's just analogy. We're not distinct from animals. Yet that's what Again, we're told in the New Testament. We're told that in the Old Testament. There is one type of flesh that is animal, another flesh that different type, which are humans. You know, we, we don't just take human remains and treat them like animal remains. We shouldn't. They're special. Mm -hmm. Whether they are ashes or a real body, we treat those special because we are a different type of flesh. And I, I believe that's a very important thing for us to know. So does it matter? Yes, it impacts a lot of things that we don't necessarily realize or acknowledge. Right. Is it essential to salvation? No. Let me clearly state that. You do not have to believe in a young earth. You do not have to understand that Genesis 1 through 11 are real historical events to understand that you are guilty of your sin before a holy God. And that God provided a payment for that sin through the shedding of the blood of his own son. You don't have to know the young earth to know that. But I am absolutely convinced, partially because of my own experiences, that it does have an impact on your sanctification, on your growth, on your understanding of God, in your worship of him. Right. And so I, I don't believe that this is a a minor issue. Mm -hmm. I, I encourage people, don't, don't tell God something is unimportant unless he tells you it's unimportant. Mm. Wait for him to do that. Mm. And I don't think he's done that with Genesis 1 through 11. Now, he, didn't, he, he has not necessarily said, 
you have to agree that it's this many years old. I don't think that that's part of what is in Scripture. But I do believe you have to understand that he has ordained the times there, and those times are under his control, not under some other control, which is the, the meaningless, undefined laws of the universe. Mm -hmm. It is under his direct care and right. providence. Right. Absolutely. Thank you for, for going through that. Um, you know, and so important is that Genesis one through eleven has a lot of foundational aspects for the rest of yes, uh, the rest of Scripture. I mean, yeah. we we learn about really the foundation for marriage and the foundation for the, our belief in the Trinity and um, many of the genealogies that we see. <laughs> kind of interesting, the, a little bit boring sometimes. But right, right. Yes, but the, but they're important, and, it's, and, it, and it impacts the way we understand the rest of the Bible, the Bible as well. Do you think that, um, or I know, you, can you show us maybe some in, in your experience with, with Scripture, um, maybe specifically with, with, with Jesus and the New Testament writers, where they believed in a young earth as well, um, and where they kind of believed that Genesis 1 through 11 was real history? Well, I, I think it might be easier to simply, I don't know that anybody would ever say that the apostles were young earth creationists, mm -hmm. because at that time, it really wasn't an issue. Mm -hmm. Let me put this in a little different perspective, if I may. I have a, a, one of my colleagues up at North Greenville University. He's a physics professor. He was born in Cameroon, in Africa. I asked him this question of, is he a young earth creationist or an evolutionist? And he said, you don't understand. In Cameroon, in our culture, in the church there, this is not an issue that is questions. Of course, everybody believes that God created. And of course, everybody believes that the Bible is correct. We don't even have these conversations because it's just known that what the Bible said is how it happened. Hmm. Um, I, I want to take that and apply it to our understanding of what I believe the apostles and the Jewish people at that time understood. They simply took their scriptures at that time, the Pentateuch, and they treated it as literal, real, and not something that had to be um, questioned or dissected. It simply was something that they knew to be true. And you wouldn't ask one of the apostles, are you a young earth creationist? Are you a theistic evolutionist? Are you a progressive creationist? What really do you guys think? His answer would have been more like what this colleague of mine said. Well, the clear reading of Scripture is what we believe. Mm. And the clear reading of Scripture, what is contained in there, yeah. simply points to a historical series of events. Right. That's all that we know. So looking at that from trying to dive into the Gospels or trying to dive into the letters of, of Paul or even Peter, and or even, even the revelation of, of, that John wrote, all of those things, None of them are going to say, oh, uh, of course, we all were sitting around and decided we needed to have a discussion about the age of the earth. Right. But you will find things where, for example, in, in Mark, where the Pharisees came, where the leaders of the day came to try to trip up Jesus and ask him about divorce. And Jesus' response was, have you not read? Now, now first of all, we take statements like that and think, well, that's just an interesting way to start a conversation. No, that's a rebuke. Hmm. The people who asked the question were the readers. The people who asked the question were proud of the fact that they not only read God's word, the Pentateuch, the Genesis, Exodus, they not only read it, they studied it, they memorized it. And so Jesus, when he starts his response to them of, have you not read? is a rebuke to them mm -hmm. because it's clearly contained yeah. in that. They should have known. They knew the answer. But Jesus' answer was that from the beginning, he created them male and female. Now, it's really hard. If, if you want to know what the author of a book said, you would go ask the author, if the author was still alive. And the reason of that is because you would consider that author to be the authority mm -hmm. on what that book said. Right. right. 
So here's Jesus talking about divorce, and he's answering it by going all the way back to Genesis, where he says, have you not read that from the beginning he created them male and female? Okay, I have to go to full stop again. Who is Jesus talking about? Who is this he who created them male and female? And when did it happen? Well, it's clear, he says, it was at the beginning. Well, when did the beginning start? Was it was it three billion years after the beginning? Is this like a second beginning beginning? Mm-hmm. Or was this after some proto-humans had been allowed to evolve enough that they reached a point where God could then reach in and go, now you're human? No, Jesus is clearly saying that at the start, that's what the beginning means. At the start, we've got male and female. Okay, that seems pretty clear. So who is this person, Jesus, saying this? The Gospel of John says that in the beginning was the Word. What is this word he's using? He's using, as we know, a play on words. He's using this word logos. He's writing to an audience that's going to understand that this is a revelation. And he says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So this thing, this revelation, this thing that's going to be revealed to us was with God. And then he says, and was God. Okay, so whatever this thing is, was God, was with God. And then he goes on to say, and he created everything that is. Now, we know that who John is talking about is the Son, the eternally present Son, the pre-incarnate Son. So Jesus, even though every person of the Godhead is fully present and indivisible, they are three distinct persons The person Jesus, John, tells us was the one who did the creating. Hmm. So here's the creator who created Adam and then Eve, now becoming incarnate and taking on human flesh and answering the question, I was there. I did it. I created the male and female. It was at the beginning. I know. Let's go ask the author. Oops. Who has greater authority? No one. This is God incarnate telling us that at the very beginning, male and female were established as male and female. Not some primordial ooze, not some hermaphroditic pre-mammalian thing, not some million thing that eventually created a differentiation of their sex, their gender, not some proto-human australopithecine or something. Jesus, who was there, said they were fully formed male and female from the very beginning. Hence, a husband and wife will come together. A man will leave his mother, a woman will leave her home, and the two shall become one establishing really that he's revealing something there. This is not just an accidental thing that that he did or couldn't help or was driven by some other process. This is a very purposeful God doing something very purposeful. Mm. And coming to that understanding, learning that, I believe is such a help for Christians. Once they, they start to see that our God is not just something we add on to our life, mm. that the God of creation really is an active, living, vibrant being worthy of our worship, Mm. our attention, and our desire. So yes, the the evidence is even from the the New Testament. I I can't take to you and and say, well, you know, uh, Peter was writing about a young earth, and here's what he said. But the evidences are clear there, and and they, they take some digging to see but they are very clear. Yes. Yeah. And thank you for, for reminding me of that one. Yes, sir. No, thank you. And thank you for that di- and, and really diving into that because, you know, ultimately we all, we want to interpret Genesis 1 through 11 the same way the New Testament writers did. And we wanted to interpret it as actual events. Right. Um, right. And it, it's so important. Um, and so going into the, some of this scientific evidence as whether it be and you've worked, you know, in organic chemistry for a long time. So you, I'm sure, I know you have the um, many examples that you, that you want to dive into. 
Um, so many people may think, or they've just been told, um, it, since evolution is, is taught in schools and um, in, the, in the public sector, that, that there is a disconnect between science and the Bible. Um, but yet we see, I know you've studied and, and, and gone through this, that there is scientific evidence for a young earth. Can you dive into a few of those examples that you think are most prevalent? Yeah, I'd, I'd love to, but I, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to lay a foundation for that. Yes, sir. Just I'm a little sorry. bit. So the worldview of science, methodological naturalism, denies a supernatural, says that there is no supernatural. So, of course, there cannot be a God who created. Mm -hmm. So... Science, first of all, I, I cannot use science to prove the Bible is correct or not. And I cannot mm -hmm. use science to prove a young earth or not. Because if I want to prove something, it has to be below the source or power or argument of what I'm proving. I can only prove down. Yeah. So if, if you ask me to use science to prove a young earth or science to prove the existence of God, that requires that science becomes God and whatever I'm proving is subservient to that. Mm. So I, I can't do that. I can't, I can't prove in this, I cannot put God down here. Right. And since God is above science, I don't have the tools in this way either. Science acknowledges that. It says we're only about the natural. Right. We cannot address the supernatural. So how do those two mix? How do I, as a scientist, use my Christianity? Are they two separate realms? Are they two separate things entirely? Are they in conflict? Mm -hmm. And philosophers have, have dealt with this question for a long time. Part of it's called the demarcation problem. When do I stop doing science and start doing religion? Where's that line exist? Uh, I have come to understand it again by looking what Jesus says about all of life. So my approach to science, when I do science, it's radically different than the methodological naturalism. Mm -hmm. and, and again, I get this from Jesus when he was asked, by the smart people of his day, what's the greatest command? And Jesus' response, um, most of your followers are probably already thinking of it because they're familiar with the Bible stories. Jesus' response was, the greatest commandment is this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your, yikes, mind. Hmm. Modern Christians today are great with the heart and soul piece. They want their love of God to be very much about their feeling and their experience and their emotions. But Jesus said that your love and worship and obedience to God encompasses and takes in your heart, your soul, and your mind, all three things in one place. So when I do science, my understanding of all of my life, actually, is I don't have part of my life that I live here in the flesh and then I've got my other spiritual life. This is all one realm. Mm -hmm. My worship is never separate from every breath I take. Yes. My worship, when I'm, when I'm taking a shower, I'm worshiping. When I'm driving the car, car, when I'm driving my car, sorry, I'm worshiping. When I'm eating a meal with my family, I'm worshiping. Right. When I'm sitting under the reading and teaching of the word of God, I'm worshiping. When I'm, when I'm singing hymns, with the rest of the body of Christ, I am worshiping. When I am talking with Wilson Paris about young earth versus old earth, I'm worshiping. Mm -hmm. There is no point where I stop worshiping. Sometimes I do it really bad. Sometimes I do it really good. But I never stop worshiping. I don't think Christians can. We are always worshiping. Right. So based on what Jesus said there, my understanding is that our walk through life is always heart, soul, mind, always together, never separate. So I do biblical science. I do a, instead of methodological naturalism, something called biblical naturalism. So when I'm doing science, I have to acknowledge that the supernatural does exist. And because it does exist, I may see in the science that I'm doing evidence of past miracles, or even, I don't know if God allows, I could see a present miracle occurred. But that present miracle would be something because it came from the supernatural. It's a setting aside of natural events. So super above the natural. So when I do that science, when I go into the lab and I, I take this chemical and I mix it with this chemical and they come together and produce a third chemical, I know that those are things that God has ordained simply in the creation. 
But I also understand that there might be something if I take this rock and this rock and I study those rocks mm -hmm. and I see in those rocks evidence of something supernatural like a global flood, then I have to acknowledge that indeed there can be a supernatural force out there that, that did these things, that God who is there judged the world, just like Peter said in, I believe it's 2 Peter 3, where he says the entire world that existed prior to the flood perished. It was utterly destroyed. And the water that was used to destroy that is now being reserved. It's not going to be a future judgment of the world in water, but a future judgment is going to come by fire. As a scientist, I can rationally say that I expect there to be another supernatural event to occur because it's clearly outlined in God's word. But apart from those things, what are, what are things that are in physical science? And I, I know that's what you're asking. What kind of evidence out there would allow me to point in the direction and point other people to say, look, this is an indication that the world is not 4.5 billion years old or that the universe is not 13.7 or whatever the latest number is years old. And um, I want to start with what I think are some of the best. Mm -hmm. The best comes from the biological sciences, but it also has to do with the physical sciences because it has to do with chemistry. And those are the soft tissues that are found in rocks. So fossils, fossils, what we used to call petrification, petrified animal remains or petrified plant remains. Fossils are rocks. They're rocks because they have minerals that have replaced the organic matter. Now, this type of fossilization I'm talking about is called permineralization. Classic, if you think about a, a mineralized tree or a fossil forest or petrified wood, that's permineralized wood. A lot of mammal fossils and reptile fossils that we find are permineralized. That's where the organic material, the, what was the flesh of that animal, the bones of that animal, minerals seeped in from the surrounding dirt. They seeped in, they filled in where all that organic matter was. The organic matter just decayed and went away over time. So there's no, none of the molecules left. It's all just minerals and rock. Well, the first evidence that I, I know that this came from was Dr. Mary Schweitzer. She goes out to Hell Creek, Montana and digs up Tyrannosaurus rex fossils. Now, she's an expert in these fossils. She likes to cut them open and look at the bone structure because the permineralization process captures a lot of the cellular details that were present in the original bone that was there. And you can learn some things, you know, about the animal, its life, what did it suffer from, what kind of diseases did it have. Well, she opened up a bone and saw in that bone what to her indicated that maybe some of the original biological material was still there. Mm -hmm. And so she developed a process to extract that from the bone, and she found what we now call today soft tissue in these fossils. Mm -hmm. Now, when she first did this, and I, I think some of the first evidence she had was all the way back in 1980. Some of her work was in the 1990s and 2000s. When she first published this, she was treated very poorly by her colleagues. Now, she's not a young earth creationist. I'm going to say that she's an evolutionist simply because I don't know her and I haven't spoken with her, but in her publications, she uses clear evolutionary ages on her material and, and speaks of things uh, from an evolutionary perspective. So a Tyrannosaurus rex fossil pulled out of a matrix, which is going to be dated based on that matrix at 70 million years old. And she pulls out soft tissue, which clearly looks like either a red blood cell or even a tendon is flexible, like our bones and tissue are flexible after 70 million years. When I see that type of information, I fall back on my experience as a organic chemist and particularly as a synthetic organic chemist. And the organic molecules are the stuff that she's dealing with in soft tissue. These mm -hmm. are things made out of carbon, oxygen, and nitrogen, the types of bonds that are there, the carbon, oxygen, double bonds, single bonds, the bonds to nitrogen. I'm very, very familiar with those, those bonds. And I can tell you that when I made chemicals in the lab as a synthetic organic chemist, those chemicals, some of them were more stable than others, but all of them over time would degrade and fall apart. They just did that. 
the second law of thermodynamics, entropy. Things get more disordered as time goes by. We would take our chemicals and we would put them in a freezer. We would put them in a, a refrigerator to try to keep them from falling apart. Uh, some of them we actually had to put under inert atmosphere. So we would take them and put them under argon to exclude oxygen and nitrogen because those things would react with them. The same is true for this soft tissue. This soft tissue should not last billions of years. It's it's actually rationally inconceivable that it does. Mm. Wow. So from a rational perspective, when we find this soft tissue, and since um, Dr. Schweitzer's original discoveries, we've had an explosion in discoveries of soft tissue. Mm. We've even found it. There was one group of researchers, because they're trying to explain how this could happen, and they thought, well, maybe there was a special uh, kind of preservation technique for these bones that you know, just happened with, with these T-Rex bones in Hell Creek, Montana. So they knew about some fossils that were in the basement of a museum in England that had been dug up a hundred years before in Greenland. And when they dug them up, the fossils were in pretty bad shape. They thought nobody's going to ever care about these. Still, we're going to catalog them. They placed them in a drawer in this basement. So there's, there's no air conditioning. There's no special preservation. There's no atmospheric care. They're just in a drawer in the basement for 100 years. These researchers went in, pulled those fossils out, applied Mary Schweitzer's technique, and isolated soft tissue hmm. out of those fossils. Wow. Uh, other researchers have found soft tissue in 80 million year, year old uh, fossils. They're just showing up in a lot of places. I, I can't say the ubiquitous, but it's pretty close. Mm -hmm. Now, as a chemist, just alone as a chemist, not as a young earth creationist, not as a Christian, just as a chemist, I have to say that it is, it stretches the imagination beyond rationality hmm. for me to believe that those chemicals could last more than a thousand years. I have no comprehension of that. It is beyond my ability to describe that that could be the case. Hmm. I, I don't see how it's possible. So the, the existence of this soft tissue in fossils, first of all, tells me that the time scale is not billions of years. That's actually scientifically irrational. It's got to be something less than that. And frankly, from my own experience, a thousand years puts it at a pretty, pretty big stretch. So another group of scientists, again, not young earth creationists, just scientists, they said, well, let's see if we can figure out what the maximum age of biological material is going to be in a rock matrix like we find these fossils in. So they went and found some, uh, some biological material in very old bones, some of them partially fossilized, and they did some research on those trying to, to find what they call the half-life of those. Now, if, if I can just for a moment, let me tell you what half-life means. It, it's, it's a term we often associate with radioactivity, so we we measure radioactive decay by half-life, and it simply means this. How long does it take if I start with 100 of something to get to 50? So 50 is half of 100. What is the time to go from whatever my original starting amount is to half that amount? Hmm. And then how long does it take to go from that to another half? And each time it divides by a half, that's the half-life. That's the time it takes. Yes. So, for example, if I have 100 sandwiches and it takes me 10 minutes to eat half of those, that's the half-life. Over the next 10 minutes, I eat half of what I have in the next 10 minutes, and I continue to do that. The half-life is 10 minutes. It gives you a logarithmic curve mm -hmm. like, like this. So they went to, to find out what the half-life was of these. Now, here's why that's important. Scientists will tell you that eventually you run out of sandwiches, right? So I had 100, I had 50, I had 25, I had 12, I had 6. Originally, I get down to one sandwich, and I can't eat half of that. I have to eat them a whole sandwich at a time. I eat that sandwich, and how many? I have, I have zero sandwiches left, right? So even if I have uranium-238 or polonium-210, whatever the radioactive material is, after 10 half-lives, there's none of that remaining. So scientists will tell you that as a general rule, we're going to establish 10 half-lives. It's the maximum length at which anything can remain if it decays by half-life kinetics. Right. And right. these material decay by half-life kinetics. They found the half-life of this genetic-like material to be 5,210 years. Hmm. Now, you can do the math. 
5,210 times 10, 52,000 years is the maximum age from science itself wow, yeah. that these fossils can be. So then I have to ask myself, do I believe this fossil's 70 billion years old? Because that's the age that was assigned based on the matrix, the layer it was found in. Or do I use repeatable science that I can do in the lab every day that sets the limit of 50,000 years? Yeah. Which one of these do I believe? This one's based on a worldview. This one's based on deep age. I need it to be this old. This one's based on real physical evidence. Similar to that is another half-life issue, and that's carbon-14. Now, carbon-14 is not found in rocks, generally. Right. The only rock it's found in is coal. It's readily abundant in coal because coal is fossilized plants. Now, I should not find carbon-14 in coal if that carbon-14 is original to the coal. If it came in afterwards, okay, maybe if it was put in into the coal later on. Coal is usually around 300 million years old is when most coal is assumed to have been formed. So carbon-14, again, decays by half-life kinetics, and it has a half-life of around 40,000 years. So if, if I take um, carbon-14 and establish, uh, I'm sorry, the, uh, the half-life, let me correct that. Half-life of carbon-14 is 5,760 years, I believe. I have to look that up to make sure, but I believe it's around 5760. So if I take that carbon-14 and 10 half-lives, again, that puts it at around 60,000 years. Right. Uh, it's the maximum age. And it's actually less than that because of the instruments we use. The limit of detection is actually 40,000 years. So if I find carbon-14 in coal, that makes it only 40,000 years old, and we find it in coal. It's all over the place in coal. Wow. So do I believe that that coal is, coal is 300 million years old, or do I believe it's 40,000 based on the fact that it has carbon-14 in it? Hmm. Same is true for diamonds. So if you find big gem-quality diamonds, geologists will tell you those diamonds formed deep, deep underneath the ground millions of years ago, actually about between 1.1 and 1.2 billion years ago, and were brought to the surface by tectonic forces, by the movement of the plates of the, of the surface of the earth. And they get close enough to the surface that we can then dig them up. But that diamond should be a billion years old. Yet we find carbon-14 in just about every diamond we test. Hmm. Wow. Which again says, yeah, there's a limit yeah. of 40,000 years on that diamond. Now, that's not 6,000, but that's a lot different than one to two billion years old. Mm -hmm. uh, a third piece of, of evidence, and this one really kind of, I, I think, is rather compelling, it has to do with helium in zirconium crystals. So the same way that if we want to try to find out how old the diamond is by looking at the carbon-14 in it, we can take a zirconium crystal, and, and, and zircon is present in granites. It's a common piece of, of like we have here in the upstate granite material. Um, that zirconium crystal is composed of zirconium and oxygen, but it also has some, usually has some very important contaminants, uranium, which is radioactive, and thorium, which is radioactive. Radium decays to give us thorium, and those continue to decay to give us lead, which is not radioactive. So if I can determine how much uranium is in this crystal, and I could determine how much thorium is in this crystal and how much lead, maybe by comparing those ratios, I can date the age of this crystal and know how old it is. Well, I need one more piece of evidence to do that, and that's how much helium is present, and, and here's why. As the uranium decays, it gives off an alpha particle. That's how it decays. That alpha particle is really a helium nucleus. So that helium nucleus picks up electrons from the surrounding matrix of the crystal, and it becomes a helium atom. Now, most of us have had helium balloons. Helium is a noble gas. It's very unreactive, and it doesn't matter what you put it in. It eventually makes its way out. I bought my daughter some helium balloons for her birthday just this last year, right. and even the brand new Mylar helium-filled balloons, which are supposed to be really good at keeping the helium from getting out, about two days later, 
those balloons had deflated because a helium makes its way out. It, it just works its way out of the balloon because it's unreactive and it's moving around. And so it came out. The same is true for the zirconium crystal. So I've got the zirconium crystal. The uranium is releasing an alpha particle. That alpha particle becomes a helium. That helium makes its way out. I need to know how fast the helium's getting out so that I can measure the amount of helium, measure the amount of uranium, and figure out how old this stone is. Okay, so we're going to measure how fast the helium gets out. Now, I can't do that at room temperature because it's too slow a process. I have to right. heat it up. So when I heat it up, I discover that the, the um, diffusion rate is maybe this number up here. And so I cool it down, and I measure it, and I cool it down, and I measure it, and I cool it down. As I do that, I get a really nice curve to my data. So I can extrapolate this back to normal temperatures where this crystal is just sitting on the surface of the Earth. And I discover that as I do that, the diffusivity constant, this constant that I've measured, sets an age of that crystal at 6,000 years old. And the people who actually published this data said, well, that's not possible. It's got to be several million years old. And so something must happen over here at these temperatures. There must be some kind of thing that we can make it get to 1.2 billion years old, which will match our number. And so there must be something because we can't accept this number. Why not? What is scientifically wrong with the number that drives you to the conclusion that that zirconium crystal is only 6,000 years old? Well, the problem is, is it contradicts the worldview. Hmm. It contradicts the underlying unacknowledged philosophical foundation that the science is sitting upon. Wow. So the evidences for me are, yeah, the, the soft tissue, I find that very compelling. Uh, the carbon-14 that's present in, sometimes in fossils you can find it, like in coal, uh, but in diamonds, but also the, the fusion of helium out of zirconium crystals all point to a very young earth. Wow. There are other ones. I mean, there's the salt in the ocean, the amount of sediment on the ocean floors, a lot of other evidences that point to a young earth. But I find those to be very compelling. Yes, definitely. Definitely. And one thing, um, maybe also just to, to touch on for a second, is, is it seems that all scientists do, do at least agree on there is some type of major event that happened that um, caused oh, yeah. some, some, you know, the, catastrophe. Cat sometimes. Catastrophe, right. Um, that caused, you know, things to happen within the earth. And um, as Christians, we believe that is, that's the flood. Right. You know, that, that's the right. flood. Um, Non-Christians would believe something different. But do we have some good evidence as well for the flood um, in, in science? I, I believe that there is clear. No, first first of all, the, the best evidence is God's word. Right, exactly. Yeah, which which not only in the Old Testament, but the New Testament is clearly treated like a real historical, literal event. Yes. And clearly says that the water covered the entire surface of the earth, not a localized event. Right. This was a global event. But yes, you can... You can see in sedimentary rock, in metamorphic rock, in the mountain building, all of those things, even where the continents are today and the movement of the continents, all of those point to a global catastrophe, which is easily explained by the events of the flood. So uh, some examples that um, other, and I'm not a geologist, I'm simply right. trusting what geologists have told me, like Andrew Snelling and, and Mike Ord, they are some creationists. A geologist, they've studied things like the uh, sandstone formations out in the desert southwest, like in Arizona near the Grand Canyon. Some of those sandstone formations, they, they extend for hundreds of square miles. I mean, these are huge depositions of sand that then get lithified into stone. All of that sand had to be eroded from something and by studying the actual grains of that sand, they discovered that the sand came from the eastern United States. Now, how do you move that much sediment over an entire continent and deposit it in a single continuous layer over hundreds of square miles hmm. and say that that is a local catastrophe? It's not. There is no possible local catastrophe. And we've had some pretty big local catastrophes. Right. Like the, the Lake Missoula flood is one example up in the Oregon, Washington area. That would have been considered a, a very large but local catastrophe. So it, it was a catastrophe that affected an entire state as that flood occurred. And this was prehistory. Mm -hmm. uh, this type of catastrophe is 
orders of magnitude above that. They can transport that amount of material. Now, below that material, I'm sorry, on top of that material is another set of, of layers. And by studying those grains, they said, well, these appear to have come from up in Utah and uh, that area that they were transported down and then laid on top of that. Wow. How do you explain that by wow. saying these came from the eastern part of the United States, must have been, a, a, I don't know, a river system? No, that makes no sense. Right. And then these came from a different part of the United States and got deposited right on top of them. The only rational explanation is a single continuous global catastrophe that produced that. And then the incredible, incredible, what, what some people call fossil graveyards, where we find thousands and millions of individuals all buried in what looks like one continuous event really speak to not normal everyday events, but catastrophe. As a matter of fact, any fossil, just about any fossil you find, because that fossil, first of all, was preserved and usually is preserved with a lot of other fossils, but was preserved in such a way that the bones are still articulated together, that has to occur not by normal events. Normal events, an animal dies and predators come along. They start to eat the animal. They'll break apart parts of the animal. Weathering will come along. The bones will de-articulate. We find fossils, constantly find fossils that are completely articulated. Fish fossils are really a good example of this. I don't know if you ever had a, an aquarium. I've had an aquarium. And when my fish die, the first thing they do is they kind of float to the surface. Yeah. Then they start to decay and they fall apart. Yet we find fish fossils that are completely intact, and we find thousands and millions of them. How do you explain a normal everyday event of fish dying, sinking down to the bottom, gently being covered by sediment and being preserved there as the mechanism? That makes no sense at all. Right. The only way that you can find articulated fish fossils is they had to be spontaneously buried in some type of catastrophe. And the fact that we find thousands, if not millions, of these fossils indicates that this was a global, huge catastrophe because they're all over the earth. So either we have a lot of very fortunate, simultaneous, spontaneous events that luckily preserved these fish fossils for us all over the earth, or it was a global event. Frankly, rationally, for me as a scientist, the single global catastrophe answers that much better than anything else yes definitely and so important uh, i love you that you brought up is, is the global aspect of it you know right. is is it something that with like older creationists where they will say it wasn't a global event is that is that a current argument that they use i i can't i can't speak for all old earth creationists right but in general they are going to say it was a local event okay. it was simply contained to just one area in which case you have to ask why build an ark right well, what was the purpose of that? First of all, if God wanted to preserve particularly Noah, why didn't he say, walk over here for a while yeah. and then walk back? I'm getting ready to destroy this area. There was no need to build an ark and then put two of every animal, land-breathing, air-breathing animal on. There's no need to do that. Right. Just have them all move out of the way. Do your catastrophe and then bring them back again. Yeah. The only rational explanation for an ark is because of that it was a global event. Now, I gotta go one step beyond that. The ark is a symbol of God's salvation. Hmm. The ark has some incredible details about it. I, I don't know if you are familiar with when God told Noah to build the ark, he said, put a covering on the outside of it. And the word that's used for that covering has the same root word that is used when the priest would go into the Holy of Holies once a year with the blood of the bull in his cup wow. and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. Yeah. That same covering, that same word is for covering. That word is atonement. Hmm. So the covering that was on the outside of the Ark of Noah that was there to protect them from the judgment is the same root word for atonement that we use for the blood that Jesus Christ, we are told, I think it's in Hebrews where he said he went into the Holy of Holies, not the one made with hands, not the one that was here on earth, the real one that is in heaven. He went into that one with his blood 
and he sprinkled it out, saying, done, payment made for that sin, for Ron Marx's sin. When I see that, and I understand this is, this is God, again, who's not just telling good stories. He's communicating to us what he wants us to know because it's important for us to know. Yes. This ark, which preserved Noah and his family from the judgment of God, had a covering on it, which was pointing towards the coming Messiah, that the Ark of the Covenant, which had the law in it, was coated, first of all, with gold. That was called an atonement. Mm -hmm. And then every year had an atonement sprinkled on it in blood. All of that pointing towards the coming Messiah, Christ, who died so that his blood could pay the penalty for my sin. This is an amazing God who is doing things not because he just wants to tell good stories, because he's revealing himself to us, because he is worthy of our worship. Yes. Yeah. It, it is important for us to know these things. And, and thank you. Thank you, Wilson, for giving me the opportunity to share these things. Yes, sir. Well, thank you for going through that. I had no idea the connections there at all. Um, so so thank you so much for, for, for diving into that. You're so. welcome. I, it all comes back to what do we believe about God? So mm -hmm. remember the God-man, truth, gospel. But I said, why does it matter? What we believe about God, when we understand that Genesis is not just a good story, that our God is more intentional than we can even comprehend intentionality. He is more purposed than we can even comprehend purposefulness, more loving than we can comprehend. He is all of these things, and he is very much about revealing himself to us. And he wants us to know him. Yes. Why would we not want to know those things? Why would we not want to take those things and make them a part of our worship of him? Mm. Yes, definitely. Dr. Marks, thank you so much for coming on today. It's been it's You're been an absolute welcome. pleasure. Really enjoyed the conversation today. And, and I learned a lot. I know our viewers will as well. So um thank you so much for coming. Is there anything else you want to discuss before we close? You know, we we go on for hours, right. but we, we <laughs> need to for the sake of our viewers and, and even for our own sake. We'll, we'll call it quits here. Yes, sir. Yeah. But yes, hey, in time, you want to go out and grab some coffee? We can talk. Yes, sir. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love this. This was great. Um, I, I hate we have to end it, but, um, but uh, you can find Dr. Marx's books on Amazon. Um, I don't, I don't have the others, but this is why six days and then doesn't matter is yeah. the other book. Um, he has a, he has a website, I believe it's called why six days. Um, it is. So, yep. you know, and, and he's on, um, on social media as well. So you can find them there, but highly recommend um, you, you give it, if you have an opportunity to look at these books, um, you can find them on Amazon. Um, but Dr. Marks, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for letting me be a part of this. Yes, sir. Thank you. Well, I'm Wilson Paris and that's a good word.